0: Hey, Greg, good to see you. Justin, how are you doing? Good. I just counted down on the screen for people that can see this on YouTube. Uh, we have a couple of moments built in so that we don't uh, lose the first moments of our lovely catching up conversation to get the episode started.
1: That's right. I'm uh, I'm in a different venue. As long-time uh, watchers of our YouTube feed will note, I'm in my office, my palatial
0: office. I wonder if feed is the right word for YouTube. I feel like I should know that. I know it's channel, but I wonder if it's feed or stream. Yeah. Maybe it's stream. Probably live stream. <laughs> probably probably live stream. But,
1: yes, as you can see, I, I have my, my deluxe uh, file cabinet behind me. Got my briefcase. Oops. Got my briefcase.
0: Uh, hey, got what's- books piled up behind me that need to be read. So I'll ask you what I uh, I ask Anne Bowman sometimes. You're going to have to tell me what a filing cabinet is. I know what a desktop is and a folder is. Filing, filing cabinet
1: is where you put
0: papers. Ah, those That's a very
1: interesting papers. <laughs> I have some very interesting papers in there, historic papers. I'll, I'll someday I'll share some with you. Ooh, that would be fun. We could have a show and tell podcast episode. No, I'm not. I'm not. These are these are things that. I'm not sure the public is ready to see. Ooh, now, now you have my attention. All right. Yeah. I know how to tease something.
0: <laughs> well, thanks for hanging out at the office tonight and staying late. I am not at the office. I am uh, actually in my bedroom uh, is where I'm holed up. But it's our one of our two usual spots for me, either here or trees in the background lately. Yes. Um, but uh, we decided This evening, what we're going to do is hit four topics. We haven't done a a hot takes in some time. We have spared you all um, really since right after the election. I think we have pretty consistently had guests. Um, And uh, so that was probably a nice break for audience. We have four topics that we want to hit on tonight. And our plan is to go fairly rapid fire, have seven to 10 minutes on each, move on through. um, And if any other topics come up towards the end that we want to comment on. Great. If any questions come in, also great. Otherwise, we will uh, maybe come in a little early tonight. How does that sound, Greg?
1: Good to me. You know, the semester's winding down, Justin. We've we got what three more weeks to go. Uh,
0: yeah, I was telling students today. I was just I was just telling you as well. The middle of the semester is always really tough. Because I can't see the end. There's no like I'm too. There's too many tasks between me and the end to feel like it's ever going to end. But now, now I have like three more weeks of classes, and I can see the end. It's here. We made it again. Yep. But there's a bunch of tasks too. There is still a bunch of tasks. I got uh, my pen. And they don't really end in the summer anymore. Um, so it's not like they end. They just kind of slow down a little bit. Okay. So first topic, I'm going to throw it up on the screen for people following along. COVID-19, you know, and getting prepped, uh, for this being one of our, uh, points of conversation this evening, I went and looked at the tracker to see how we were doing just more generally from a trends, um, because it's hard to keep things in perspective. At least it is for me with things related to the pandemic. And You know, we're way down from the summer, um, which is great. And we had a really steep drop early spring in terms of both cases and deaths. Uh, Cases are still as, uh, deaths are still as low, I think, as they were in October of last year before the big, uh, before the big jump. It seems like new cases have kind of maybe inched back up a little bit, um, plateaued, inching back up. Um, at the same time, you know, there are some concerns with the rollout of the vaccine. Maybe we can talk about some of those, but we're getting lots and lots of vaccine uh, uh, rollouts in large, large numbers. Um, so it seems to me we have these competing things going on, relative good news around uh, increased rates in vaccination as far as uh, as far as I'm concerned from a health perspective And some challenging, you know, not being able to get our numbers down. I mean, we're still above where we were when the first surge kind of hit. And it seemed like it was the end of the world. I mean, I think we're still 70,000 new cases um, yesterday and over 400 deaths. Um, So how do you what's your take on where we are and kind of some of the the impending challenges and some of your thoughts? Yeah, I. So I got I got
1: my second shot uh, on Friday, as I told you. So I'm uh, I'm on my way to fully vaccinated, uh, you know, the two week, the two week uh, incubation period. And then I'm, you know, I'm I'm not, I'm not gonna take unnecessary risks, but my wife and I have booked summer travel, go back east, see see our families. Uh, so yeah, I mean we're ready to start being a bit more normal. So that, uh, you know, my perspective is colored by that. And so I guess I'm being, feeling a little optimistic. I mean, when you look at the vaccination numbers, I think that the big issue now is not accessibility. It's convincing the hesitant to get vaccinated. I think that, you know, even with the Johnson and Johnson problems that came up today, my guess is that, uh, you know, we've, 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 pointed this huge battleship of the American productive system in the right direction. And there's going to be plenty of vaccines, you know, here in Brazos County, we got so many that you don't even have to sign up for an appointment anymore. You just show up. Uh, that's not true everywhere, of course, but it, it, it it's going to be soon. It's going to be soon. And so I just can't imagine that by the end of May, Anybody who wants a vaccine, either will have gotten their first shot, or will be scheduled to have their first shot. Right? I, I, it's hard for me to imagine, you know, just the overwhelming amount of vaccine is going to is going to to suffuse any logistical problems. I think
0: maybe by like July fourth, we could be down below like a thousand cases a day, or some like. Real serious great. landmark, yeah. and we can have an excuse to to celebrate. Out of um, the fireworks.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that, that the issue, the next issue is going to be herd immunity, and how do you get the hesitant? You know, there's some people that you're not going to convince, right? I mean, they're vaccine deniers, they're COVID deniers but there are there are hesitant people right Mm -hmm. and there are some logistical issues with folks who don't have the internet folks in poor neighborhoods and all and you i think you just got to put people on vans and send them out to you know you know set it up in churches set it up in in supermarkets set it up in in the vfw hall i mean and i think that we'll be able to do it because we'll have plenty of vaccines but the public policy challenge of convincing the hesitant i think is going to be you know, and and my guess is that there's not that many hardcore deniers you know if it's 10 15% but it's that other 20% who are just hesitant yeah and that's the difference right between herd immunity and you know c- you know allowing these variants to find more and more hosts that'll keep the cases going up and on yeah so So that's my worry
0: yeah so anecdotally two two pieces of this i found really interesting um as part of my time in georgia and then as part of my time kind of talking to different people about access to vaccines so the first thing is that i encountered a lot of skeptical skeptical people of the vaccine as you might imagine But, but almost, uh, almost no, under no circumstances would I ever, uh, take the vaccine. Even people that, um, I would have thought might be more in that camp were like, yeah, but they watched people in their eighties get it. And then people in their seventies get it. And then other people in their sixties get it and have no real serious consequences and then there are a lot of kind of positive inducements out there as well. So I'm, I'm optimistic that as that kind of becomes even easier, you don't have to schedule an appointment. There are no other barriers. You can just, when you're at the grocery store that day, get it done. That people, both that it's hard to get access to for whatever reason, work, uh, poverty, et cetera, and for people who are looking for barriers, um, when those go down, I think most people will 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 get it. One piece of this from the public administration lens that has been really fascinating, so as you know, I study discretion. And discretion is basically how frontline people um, make decisions based on whatever the rules are. They still have to implement things.
1: You, you study and, discretion, but you're not particularly
0: discreet. <laughs> that's definitely true. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, Um, I started getting, as the scheduling problems were rolling out, I was on a couple of calls with people in, in Texas where what they said to me was, if you want the vaccine, go to Walmart at the end of the day. Yeah. They have more than enough every day. And if you show up, they will not turn you away. So that was one piece of evidence. And then uh, in, I was in Georgia when it became 16 and up uh, was allow, uh, 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 allowed to sign up for it, both before and after. Right before you could sign up with any, any health condition that you could think of. And then like two weeks later, they changed it with anyone above 16. So while they were listing, while you had to list something for those two weeks, anecdotally, when people showed up, they didn't ask for anything. They didn't ask for, I got the mass places. They didn't ask for identification. They didn't ask for uh, proof of those health conditions. It was just, you're here, boom. Boom. Which which is another piece that's kind of interesting. And then I waited till about before I was going to head back uh, out west and called the local Publix because my grandfather had gotten in at Publix. And I knew Publix was making, uh, uh, you could schedule online. So I called just to see what they would say to me over the phone. And I know that people had just kind of showed up there and gotten it done or did an informal schedule with, with someone on location. So on the phone, what I was told with someone who is physically at the pharmacy was you have to go online. You cannot yeah. schedule them over the phone. Um, so all of that, just to, from a discretion standpoint, it was really interesting to watch – how people tried to toe the line for whatever legal uh, norm had been set, or precedent had been set, or regulation had been set, but then professionals, professional healthcare workers, were just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. If people show up, we're going to give them the back We're to send not sending people away, yeah. um, and that creates some weird situations because, you know, like for me, I didn't want to show up, and then it be like in any way taking it from someone else or doing something that felt unethical. But also if I was at more high risk, I would definitely show up <laughs> and just have gotten it as soon as I had like informal ways to get it. Yeah, so it was- I, I
1: Good. I, I think we're at a point now where you're not taking it from somebody else. Yeah, that's definitely you know,
0: true.
1: I, I, you know, maybe at the beginning, if you had jumped the line, you'd be taking it from somebody who might have needed it more. I don't think that that's the case anymore.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. All right. So, uh, anything else on COVID before we move on? It's on no. The- I mean, this
1: is our first quasi-optimistic discussion of COVID okay. since we
0: started. I know it's kind of nice. Yeah. So, the next thing that we had, you and I had uh, mentioned that we might discuss is the infra- infrastructure plan under consideration. So, just to briefly set some of the high uh, uh, pieces of this, high specifics. Um, so there's another big spending plan under consideration that the Biden administration is pushing forward with a heavy focus on infrastructure as a piece of it, depending on how you think about infrastructure. And it turns out that it means a lot of different things to different people as part of this discussion. Um, and some of the commentary I was reading today is really talking about this as being Biden's way to kind of set a brand, a grand vision for domestic spending and investing in the country from a central government standpoint while doing it in a targeted way, kind of betting big on that as a way to launch our country forward. And so what's your take? And then I can maybe, or I can share some of my take. I mean, how do you see this as a plan and whether or not that's a good strategy given where we are and in our competitive environment? What what do you think? It's incredibly ambitious.
1: I think much like the kinds of infrastructure investments that were made in the post-World War II period, you know, the Eisenhower administration, the the iconic case of the of the of the interstate highway system, remember Eisenhower sold that as a national defense matter. And and uh, Biden is selling a lot of this infrastructure as, hey, if we're gonna compete with the Chinese, and that's I think it's politically brilliant, you know. Uh, I, I, I think that he realizes that they'll probably lose the house in the midterm elections, right? If only because uh, redistricting is going to lose the Democrats a number of seats, right? Texas is going to gain seats. Some of the of the lower population, you know slower population Pennsylvania might lose a seat. You know, there's going to be even even if Biden is incredibly popular. I think it's gonna be awfully hard for the Democrats to hold on the House. And and it just means they gotta they gotta get everything done in this year and early next, because I don't think that they're gonna have a unified government after 22. Uh and, and so this is this is breathtakingly ambitious. And uh I, I think that the the definition of infrastructure to include you know, not just roads and bridges, not just broadband, which is incredibly important. You know, water pipes, that's part of infrastructure, but child care and elder care. You know, how can you have a workforce if the if the old folks aren't taken care of and the and the kids aren't taken care of? I think I think makes a lot of sense. Now you know, the Republican talking point, a lot of this isn't infrastructure. Well, yeah, by the, the old fashioned roads and bridges definition, it's not, but I think that you can make a strong case that this is infrastructure for a, for a 21st century economy. And, uh, but it's a lot of money. and, 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 you know, one of the fascinating things to me is how much debt we're going into and how nobody cares. Uh, People, even 10 years ago, during the, the response to the Great Recession, people had their hair on fire. You know, you couldn't, Barack Obama couldn't put up a trillion dollar uh, relief bill, right? And now, you know, we have a, a trillion dollar relief bill at, under Trump and a $2 trillion relief bill under Biden, and now we've got a, a $2 trillion plus uh, infrastructure bill. The only reason that we can get away with this, and I'm not against it, okay? And, and, <laughs> I know it's and, hard
0: for you, though. I know it's hard for you. <laughs> and,
1: and, you know, at least the Biden people are putting up taxes for this one. Yeah. But the only reason we can get away with this is because we're a superpower. It's because foreigners are willing to buy our bonds and hold our dollars. Any other country does this. And their and and the value of their currency collapses, and they can't sell their bonds. And it's it's our it's not just our economic power; it's our central political economic power. That that allows us to do these things. You know, the Biden administration says we're going to have a foreign policy for the middle class. Well, the most important part of that foreign policy for the middle class is maintaining America's leading international role. So we can run these deficits
0: yeah um, so I think it's definitely ambitious and I think the 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 expansion of consideration of things like elderly care um, uh, need to be a part of a modern uh, infrastructure of a society that is one that you want to live in and when you want to grow older in and when you want your parents to grow older in um it only takes i think a cursory look of that industry um to suggest that maybe it uh investments that are carefully targeted that include accountability measures um could be very helpful um Yeah. And then there's, is this open question of to what this, I mean, I think it is now becoming an open question among economists is how much the debt matters um, and how much running up a deficit uh, in a single year, but the overall uh, overall debt has on kind of modern monetary um, modern monetary theory. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's kind of interesting because I think, you know, another way of thinking about it is as long as the, Things that we're investing in with the debt have a higher return than the the debt. Um, You know, in theory, we should be able to do a lot of that as long as it's um, positive investments and not negative investments. And a lot of these things um, in the infrastructure plan sound to me like positive externality things, helping to address uh, gaps or failures in the marketplace that are clearly identifiable. To you know, policy experts, I think. Um, but to your point, um, at least historically, and maybe even now, uh, it's still at such sums and uh, amounts um, that uh, it should really cause us pause to stop and think about it kind of carefully, uh, because for other for other nation states, and historically, it it really could, it really might have, and still you know might have triggered collapse um, as part of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, the problem with debt is that it's not a problem until it's a problem. Right. Uh, you know, the, what's the old quote from, I think from Hemingway, how do you go bankrupt slowly then all of a sudden, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, right.
1: And, and I'm not saying that we're going bankrupt. Right. But I do think that it, it's wise for us to be looking at the tax code, uh, and, and We've got to find some ways to, as part, as part of addressing the overall question of inequality in the country, which I think is, you know, the major political and social uh, challenge confronting us. Uh, and I say this from a conservative point of view. I mean, you, you, if your society gets too unequal, you better watch out because then no, there's too many people think that nothing's worth conserving. Uh, but I, I think that we have to think about how we use the tax code to, to help pay for these programs that are meant to redress that inequality and grow the pie. So I, I, I'm in favor of these, these things, you know, maybe not every single project, but you know, let's, let's set up the, let's set up the electric charging stations for the electric cars, right? The electric cars are coming. Right, and let's have a let's have a, a a power grid and an infrastructure that runs more on sustainable energy and less on fossil fuels. We got to you know, we got to do that. I think that that's that's all worth investing in, but we also have to we got we got to make some down payments, and that means and that means we got to raise taxes. And it's easy to ra- it's easier to raise taxes on corporations, but you know, rich people shouldn't be immune to paying a little bit more. And you know, Biden said 400,000 for a family. Okay, well, maybe it should be 300,000. So yeah, we got got to think about that.
0: Well, speaking of uh, inequality as being one of our major issues that targeted investment um, should be able to help if we think about it kind of cleverly and we believe in uh, policy tools and levers. Um, Another policy tool uh, that is being exercised right now is um, trying to limit or make it more – trying to limit people's access to the voting booth, I think, is the only way to put this. Um, And I was in Georgia as the bill was playing out there. Um, That's that's ground zero. And it was ground zero, and it's pretty interesting to watch the – information machines in action in real time uh, coming across the newsfeed and the local channel where you're sitting. Um, and um, so the question that was asked of me by all kinds of people um, is why is this so bad? So what I got was, why is this so bad? This is, this is not even as bad as New York was like a, was a talking point that was uh, brought to my attention. And then what's so bad about people having to have an ID to vote? People have to have an ID to do uh, all kinds of other things um, What's sort of the two big... Uh, like what? Big what,
1: what, do you, what do you need an ID to do?
0: You know, you don't need... Yeah.
1: Trump Trump said, oh, you need an ID to go to the grocery store. No, you don't. You don't need an ID to go to the grocery store. It shows you how often Trump goes to the grocery store. Yeah. Right? What, what do you need an ID to do? Yeah. Drive a car uh, apparently, and doesn't everybody yeah, drive a well, car? Yeah, yeah. got to have a driver's license to drive a car. But yep. guess what? You can kill somebody with a car. You go in to vote, you're not killing anybody. Yeah. Yep. Even if you even if you pull the machine down on yourself, you're probably not killing yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Well, my response after pointing out that if New York is worse than being more like New York is is also not good. Just just from a starting point of that one, um, just so we're clear. Um, And yes, fine, Um, like I'm not on face disagreeing with the point that having people that are voting have some way of identifying themselves. So they're not voting multiple times or some way of checking to make sure they're not voting multiple times. Yes, Um, but you know, like one, there were other things in this bill. some pretty absurd things that have been made fun of, like um, or kind of pointed out as being kind of cruel and and certainly unnecessary, like not being able to give people water or food in line, which is just yeah. uh, um, I don't know what I don't yeah. I mean. Somebody could I
1: buy mean. your vote with a with a, a, a you know a plastic thing of water. Yeah, but what I
0: what I said to some folks was the problem is that it's clearly a targeted response. It's clearly in Georgia, at least, Hey, we barely lost a lot of people voted. A lot of people voted absentee ballot as well. Let's make it harder to vote absentee ballot. We know there was a disparity there among Democrats and Republicans. So let's make that part harder and let's continue to make it harder in poor areas for them to be able to vote. Right. Um, that is clearly, I mean, it it is, uh, it is targeting. It's trying to keep people from voting. That's what it's trying to do. Right, and it's, and it's, and it's, tar- and it's targeting the na-
1: it's targeting the areas. Right. I mean, targeting. Yeah. There are going to be more drop boxes in rural counties and fewer drop boxes in in uh, uh, urban and immediate suburban collar counties around Atlanta. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is you. You can still vote absentee, and you know. Some of the worst stuff was taken out. You, there's still going to be early voting on Sundays, but not as much. Uh, you, can, you, you can get your, uh, your absentee ballot by putting in the last digits of your driver's license. Okay, fine, you know. But, but this is an answer to a problem that doesn't exist. Yeah. And that's, and, and that's the thing that I think is the most galling. Is that there's absolutely no evidence of of not just widespread but even noticeable fraud in the twenty uh, twenty election, and we're 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 now saying that well, we have to do this ballot, we have to have ballot integrity because people are worried about it. Well, why are people worried about it? Because they were told lies. The big and, lie
0: was. Yeah,
1: and it 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 is not, it is anti-democratic. It's 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 part of this inequality thing because if people don't believe that they that if they if people believe that the system is rigged against them using their vote to try to change it, then they've got no stake in the system. And as someone who's profoundly kind of in his bones conservative, that's dangerous. Especially because if you if you had it and, and it's taken away from you, then you're really mad.
0: So one more thing on this before um, we move on to the importance of democracy <laughs> in, uh, in our conflict with some of our adversaries. Um, what do we do when a party, when one of two major parties in the U.S. becomes anti-democratic as one of the things that it's doing? because you, know, you and I work in the, in the public education system and we have a commitment to being nonpartisan and we have a commitment to democracy and education. So, you know, there are, from across all sorts of folks that are outside of Trump's camp, there are a lot of us observing that the GOP is behaving in kind of anti-democratic ways as part of how it defines itself. What are we supposed to do with that in a two-party system? (laughs) Because it seems to me that the only response is to kind of come out against them. Um, because you only have one dim one party that's for democratic tools and one party that's much less for democratic tools. Well, you gotta encourage the
1: elements in in the party where this is an issue to uh to do the right thing i mean you know maybe you have to maybe you have to to vote in their primaries when there are serious issues involved of people who are who are you know you might disagree with them but they're you might disagree with them on the issues but they're committed to democracy versus people who uh, seem to you know you have reason to believe that that they're not committed to democratic principles that that, that they're 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 more concerned with limiting the vote than than uh, guaranteeing access to our citizens to vote, uh, it's troubling, Justin. I th- I think it's the long I think it's the most troubling thing long term from the Trump administration. Is you know I I disagreed with Trump on trade. Well, lots of lots of Democrats kind of like him on trade. I disagreed with Trump on immigration, but you know I'm I'm kind of a you know. More, you know, I'm pretty damn close to open borders, which is not a popular position. But I think immigration made this country great. I I think that this long-term questioning of the integrity of our electoral system is the single most damaging thing that uh that Donald Trump has done. And and he's not stopping it. And I think Republicans. They have to get beat at the polls. They have to get beat at the polls and I'm not so sure they will be Uh, because the only way political parties change their tune is by getting beat at the polls. If if the song they're singing is, is getting results, they're not gonna change the song. So I think the next 10 years are gonna be really, really important for how the Republican Party develops.
0: It's a good answer. I, uh, I agree. Um, I had hoped there would be a more forceful, and we talked about this uh, in the aftermath of the election, that there would be a more forceful refuting of the Trumpism brand of cons- of the Republican Party. Um, and uh, it doesn't seem to that's not how it's played out. Um, and so I'm I'm concerned, um, but uh, hopefully that, to your point, that the polls are just. Um, Speak for themselves, and not enough rules can be changed, or enough votes can be oppressed, to keep them from uh, from the electoral consequences. Yeah. So,
1: well, I mean, this is this is a really big question, uh, and and we know that democratic there are democratic systems. I mean, we had a podcast with Jessica Gottlieb about how democratic systems uh, decline and atrophy, and and we are not immune, right? We are not chosen by God to be, you know, uh, a special people. I know we tell ourselves that, and it's a nice story, but don't believe it. We've got to work to maintain what we have, and uh, we, we, you know, we keep our fingers crossed.
0: Fingers crossed. Well, in uh, talking about challenges to democracy. Um, there are a couple of different ways of thinking about uh, governing systems. One is one based on democracies and uh, markets, and another uh, is on a single party communist party. Um, and with, market. And, and market as well. Yep. And so there's been, um, uh, so this has come up in conversations and some of the work I've been doing in artificial intelligence policy and space policy come up because my brother's in Taiwan um, and so as it comes up in the news family members are talking about it um, and at first I I was kind of downplaying this as increased tensions between U.S. and China um, and I don't think I can do that anymore I, I think the only like read of kind of the dialogue is like that the tensions are increasing. There are some initial attempts from the Biden administration, I think to engage um, the Chinese communist party in, in in dialogues in ways that the Trump administration did not. But do you see any other way of interpreting kind of uh, what's going on between the U S and China as rising tensions potentially leading towards I know the next piece is a zone piece, but potentially leading towards a new cold war.
1: Sure. I mean, I, I, it seems to be one of the few things that there's bipartisan agreement on. And as I said, I, I, I think the Biden administration is gonna utilize that to sell the infrastructure project, right? Uh, I, I, here's my problem, okay? We could have a cold war with the Soviet Union that was pretty hairy, but stable because of nuclear weapons largely because we were not particularly connected to the Soviet Union, right? We had almost no economic relations with the Soviets and the Soviet bloc. Minuscule stuff, right? We can have a stable geopolitical competition with the Chinese because, you know, we both have nuclear weapons. I don't think we're you know, there's a chance, just like in the in the U.S. Soviet period, there there's a chance we could stumble into war. But I don't think either side is going to say, uh, "Okay, let's plan on a war, let's plan on great power war." Uh, but what's different is that our economies are, you know, very tightly interlinked, global supply chains. Uh, movement of capital, and the Biden administration is saying, look, we've got to de-link to some extent, but they're not talking about the kind of de-linkage that we had with the Soviet Union. And I think that that just means that the, the template of the of the U.S.-Soviet Cold War isn't going to apply on this one. Uh, and, and, and so we're in kind of, uh, you know, Unknown territory, right? Uh, we're going to have geopolitical competition, but but our economies, the delinking of our economies would be so painful on both sides that we're we're presumably going to try to find some way to to stay linked, even as we're you know engaged in contests for influence around the world and as we engage in a propaganda contest you know the u.s saying democracy and the Chinese saying is that what you call democracy we've got a more orderly system you know it'll be yeah. interesting to see but it's 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 it can't follow the template of the u.s Soviet Cold War yeah.
0: well another piece of that to your point is you know the weapons are are different now how much of a difference that makes and how it plays out but, but do you think so, the weapons are that different? Well, what I was going to, the thing that I think is different about them is, so we were talking a little bit earlier about cyber attacks. So nuclear weapons are still the big elephant in the room and what keeps it all relatively stable, but it doesn't take, uh, you can have um, larger scale covert digital operations and it not be completely clear to a general audience who did it. Yeah. and you can do that at a at a fairly uh, for all kinds of targets, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then the thing that I the thing I think is a little different about it is that it doesn't require the same types. It doesn't have the same types of controls and things that say nuclear weapons do. Like it's not as yeah. damaging, but it's much easier for uh, hackers to destabilize systems under. Covert, I told you I was reading this book and this has been on my mind. Yeah, so yeah. I'm here. Uh, uh, well, this comes
1: back though. I mean, this is the, these are to some extent the weapons of the week. The Iranians, you know, who can't fight us in a war don't want to. They're not stupid. The Russians, right? But I think it comes back to this idea that the Chinese economy and our economies are very tied up. I mean, you do damage to the American economy. The ripple effects in Russia are going to be minuscule. The ripple effects in Iran will be non-existent. The ripple effects in China might actually be serious. Yeah. And, and I think it might be easier with the Chinese to come to some kind of deterrence, some kind of deter, to have a deterrence dialogue and maybe even the equivalent of arms control on this stuff that will be much harder to have with countries with which we are not connected, yeah. right? there's so much more incentives there as you I mean as you're pointing right. you out. I mean there's there, there's so much mutual pain. Yep.
0: Uh,
1: now what the Russians tried to do of course was not interfere in our economy but interfere in our electoral system. And that I think we just have to be we just have to be vigilant and and there has to be a cost. And if it's the Chinese try to interfere in our electoral system the way the Russians did then we have to impose a cost on them. But here's the problem. And it comes down to that ideological conflict that the Biden administration looks like it's very happy to have, right? We don't think we're interfering in Chinese domestic politics, but they think we are. Just by promoting, you know, talking about Hong Kong, talking about the Uyghurs, right? I think Putin firmly believes that America is trying to overthrow him. And so for him, interfering in our elections is tit for tat, right? Uh, I think most Americans would say, of course we're not interfering in Russian domestic politics. But when we criticize Putin for being authoritarian, when we we, we say, you you know, we're gonna have a summit of democracies, you can't come, right?
0: Yeah, it's all a continuum, right? I mean, in that way you can kind of pick any arbitrary point and say, yep, oh, this is meadowing or this isn't meadowing. Uh, yeah. and you can still be along that same yeah. continuum of behavior. Um, right. Because right. it uh, can mean a lot of different things, <laughs> to your point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm actually a little more
1: optimistic that we might be able to find a deterrent point with the Chinese. Because what, you know, what, what interest do the Russians have in our success? None. Chinese, you know, they take a very long view and they think they're going to beat us and you know i think we're probably going to you know maintain our position in the long term vis-a-vis them but they they realize that the short-term cost of a big interruption of relations with the united states would have serious ripple effects for them economically yeah maybe, have- maybe maybe this is just my day for optimism
0: yeah, I'm going to take it. I'm not even going to push back. I'm going to take the optimism today. We probably, uh, probably useful to overcorrect in that direction every once in a while. Maybe. And uh, I do think that there are multi kind of lateral engaging with a broad set of actors and <laughs> kind of coalitional ways to influence the Chinese government. And in some of the writing I've been doing, this has been my argument that the U.S., rather than Focus on the conflict narrative or the Cold War narrative. Focus on engagement in kind of a large, multilateral way, and say, "Here's how all the actors in the global market are playing. Here's how we're going to do things. Here's how global conflict's going to be done." And you can get some shots out here and there on these things, but there's going to be real consequences in a coordinated kind of way, which is, of course, really hard to do, and uh, there's challenges with that. But um, You know, that's that's the way I see that we can play play to our advantage, play to the fact that we've helped set these rules, we have these partnerships rather than just us and China. And that and
1: that was the the fundamental reality of international politics that Donald Trump missed. Right? He he you know, he's right that the Chinese were trying to eat our lunch. But one of the ways we protect our lunch is having a bunch of other rich countries in the EU and Japan and other East Asian countries. With us basically saying to the Chinese, "Here's the rules of the game," exactly. Yeah. And I think that 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 was something we missed. So we got a couple of questions. Should we take them as a wrap?
0: Yeah, let's do it. So the first question here um, is: uh, We talked about raising the corporate taxes, and if that happens, do we think the U.S. economy will be hurt uh, by not matching lower corporate tax rates and other advanced economies? And you want to go first, Greg? Yeah, my guess is is is. Uh, well, this is why uh, Secretary of the Treasury,
1: Janet Yellen, is talking about, you know, some kind of negotiated uh, basic minimum corporate tax. Uh, that'll be interesting. You know, the Bahamas won't sign on for that. Liechtenstein won't sign on for that, right? But, but you could probably get lots of places to sign on. We'll see. I, I actually think that, that uh, corporations tend to invest where they want to sell, So, yeah, you know, you'll invest in Ireland to sell into the European Union. Uh, I think that when they shift money around for tax purposes, that money tends to come back to the U.S. Uh, We might we might lose it for tax purposes, but it's still part of our investment portfolio. It doesn't it doesn't. I'm not as worried about it. Frankly, I'm not as worried about it. How about you?
0: Yeah, I think. Uh, economic theory would tell me that on the margins, it probably makes some difference, right? It would be, uh, I think, weird to claim that there was no effect uh, of raising it. However, um, I agree with Greg that, you know, this is, it's one piece that they're considering um, uh, less from the kind of money flows back into, you know, there are a lot of other benefits to having your business located in the U.S. economy um, and with the other protections and regulations that corporations enjoy in this country. If we we get our infrastructure. improved, Cool. Yeah. We can get our infrastructure together. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But so I think we addressed the second one um, as, uh, as Dave here notes, um, but you know, what were our thoughts about the uh, potential cold war shifting to a hot war? And I mean,
1: this, this is not any great uh, insight, but, but the flashpoint's Taiwan, right? Because you know their nationalism plays in, and you know everybody in China, well, certainly everybody in China who counts, thinks Taiwan is part of China, and for them, you know, reuniting Taiwan with with the mainland is is a domestic political issue, right? It's it, and and we and one assumes the majority of people in Taiwan see it differently. Uh, yeah. And that, and that's the, that will be the flashpoint.
0: Yeah. I think, um, I think you're right with their strategy for Taiwan will say a lot about what they intend for their, right. for their, I mean,
1: there's, there's other crisis points, right? South China Sea, naval stuff. What happens if the North Korean government finally collapses, but, but, you know, on North Korea, it will be kind of, everybody's getting splattered and the Chinese are probably getting splattered more than anybody that might not be a reason to go to war that might be a reason to to cooperate on something south china sea you know is going to be we're we're going to there's going to be lots of games of chicken just like there were with us and the soviets during the cold war but i i i think that neither side's going to want to escalate those to to a shooting war it's taiwan where people might be willing to take more risks
0: yeah, I don't have additional insight. This one, uh, I agree with your assessment. Um, and you my spend time in Taiwan, I spent time in Taiwan. Uh, my brother's there right now, teaching, um, teaching English and, um, I have uh, Taiwanese colleagues that I'm currently working with. And, uh, my sense I spent th- basically three months there, um, is that the Taiwanese people think of themselves as Taiwanese. So the overwhelming majority, not as Chinese. Um, a little bit of a generation gap, a little bit, but it's uh, definitely a solid majority. Um, and the the government functions like a nation, state, island, state government. Uh, that's how there's not like in if you went to Hong Kong, there were Chinese flags, Chinese Communist Party flags at the airport. That is not the case um, in Taiwan, mm-hmm. and they see themselves, uh, at least the folks that I was interacting with, um, as Western and uh, democracies and market economies and a, a leading figure in the Asian world for democracy and liberalism and yeah. uh, the whole shebang.
1: And cause they feel like yeah. they just
0: earned it right. And the, it's really interesting talking to the younger generation because they feel like they're the first generation that's getting to um, experiences and they don't, they don't mince their words around democracy as my, as uh, my take. So yeah, to your point, I think that gives you a potential situation for it to be, um, uh, a matchbox. And, and what I think will be interesting is again, what kind of, what does a hot war even look like in an advanced economy? We I mean, have an understanding of what an event, uh, a hot war looks like in, in some places, but uh, in Hong Kong, it didn't really transition to a hot war for a couple of reasons, but there was some violence. Uh, Kiev yeah. is maybe an example where there's some violence and maybe that counts as a hot war probably. Um, where? Sorry. In, in, uh, in Ukraine. Oh, in Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I I even wonder like what does what does even a hot war in an advanced economy look like um, with all the range of tools that we have now? It could be uh, I mean it could be like how Russia treated Ukraine like it could be kind of cyber, cyber attacks, some violence, mis- mischief, uh, messing people around without
1: things. people without uniforms fighting
0: you know, which yeah. is which violates the the laws of war, but. Well, let's hope, uh, let's hope we find ways to cooperate. Um, and we, uh, we don't end up in a zero sum game, but in a positive sum game where cooperation is, uh, is the ideal strategy for all parties involved. <laughs> let's hope
1: that's a good optimistic note on which.
0: to. Yeah, start. let's stop there. Okay. Well, we will be back in, uh, two weeks, which, uh, is April 27th. That'll be our last, uh, recording for the semester for sure, uh, probably for the academic year. Uh, We'll be keeping you updated on next steps after that. And um, hey, Greg, it's good to see you, man. Nice seeing you, Justin. Take care. Hang in there. You too. Bye-bye.